The title of my sermon today is Sin Normalized, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. But to start off, I want to talk about texting and texting abbreviations. I want to see how savvy you are at texting abbreviations. What does WTTP mean when you send it in a text? I don't know. Texting while driving. That's not even right. T-W-D. See, I don't know how. Okay, well, copy and paste didn't work on that. Let's try another one. H-T-P. Hope this helps. Okay, well, I got that one right at least. Move on to another one. N-N-T-R or something similar. Does anybody know what N-N-T-R is? No need to reply. Mercy. S-F-L-R. Well, duh. No? Sorry for late reply. Yeah. So all of you uh, old-timers can start using that this week. S-F-L-R. T-Y-T. Take your time. Don't be in a hurry. How about N-O-Y-B? What, what? None of your business. (laughs) They knew that one, didn't they? (laughs) Back off, Pastor. How about R-O-T-F-L? Rolling on the floor laughing. If you still haven't gotten one yet, you should know this one. L-O-L, laughing out loud. Even though that typically doesn't happen, we still say it anyway. L-O-L. This morning, I want to look at a passage of Scripture where somebody L-O-L'd, if you will. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to look in verse 15. Genesis chapter 17, beginning with verse 15. There's a story that you know well, and we're just going to be here briefly this morning, but it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her, and then I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. And then we have it there in verse 17. Then Abraham did what? Fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham, LOL'd. Or maybe we could say more appropriately, he F-O-H-F-A-L fell on his face and laughed. Why? Well, he says right there, will a man bear a child at 100? And will Sarah at 90 years old? I mean, some of you are, are there sitting thinking this morning, yeah, I would have probably laughed too. At 90? At 100? But I want to remind you this morning that Methuselah... The oldest man had a son when he was, do you remember? 187 years of age was when his uh, son was born. So my question is, what had changed? Why was this all of a sudden so funny to Abraham? Somehow the thinking had changed, and my question is why? Here's a a graph for you. I'm not going to dissect the whole thing, but you look at all these patriarchs here before the flood, starting with Adam and then Seth and Enos. The, the first part in green, that is how old they were when they had their first child. And so Adam didn't have Seth until he was 130 years old. That's what you call a honeymoon period. And then he lived another 800 years, and he lived a total of 930 years. Seth, when he was born, 
At 105, he had his first child. And then he lived another 807, so his total, he lived 912 years. And you can see on down the line, 905 years, 910 years, 895 years, 962 years. Enoch, he only lived 365, but what happened to him? He never died. He went straight to heaven. And then you have a few others, but then you have the time of the flood, and something changes. Something starts to shift. The, the lines are getting shorter and shorter and shorter here, aren't they? You know, before the, the flood, the average lifespan, if you don't include Enoch, because he didn't die, was 912. That was the average lifespan. 912! Can you imagine? If we had somebody up here that was 912 years old, we could ask him any question we wanted to about World War I, World War II, the Civil War, the American Revolution, the Reformation, and Martin Luther. What was it like to meet Martin Luther? We could ask him, was Christopher Columbus handsome? They'd be able to tell us. Before the flood, 912. After the flood, the first 10 patriarchs from Shem to Abraham, you average their lifespan, it's only 316. That's a big difference. Abraham, by the, by the way, only lives to be 175 years. And so we get to this passage where Abraham LOL'd. The thinking had changed. Sin was normalized, if you will. There's something about sustained exposure to certain conditions that changes the mind. Something that abhors the first time after you view it again and again and again is no big deal. You become calloused, if you will. And so now by the time we get to the time of Abraham, they're accustomed to a shorter lifespan. From 9.12 on average to 3.16, now Abraham only 175. But look at how Moses writes about Abraham. It says in Genesis 25, 7 and 8, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died, and what does it say? In a good old age, an old man and full of years. Fast forward a little bit further. By the time we get to the time of David, he's writing this in Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our lives are what? Seventy years. So what? What's the point? Sin was becoming normalized. And as sin became general, it appeared less and less sinful. Degradation and deterioration of human life was becoming the norm. Yeah, I mean, as the days of our lives, 70 years. That's the norm. You know, there's something that God, I think, allowed for us when, when life throws us something that is not ideal. Have you ever heard the expression, the new normal? Has anybody here adjusted to a new normal? We have a, a special needs kid in our house. He'll wake up in the middle of the night with a, a scream that sounds terrible, and then he'll proceed to throw up and dry heave sometimes for 15 minutes, sometimes for an hour. Oftentimes there is, is, is constipation uh, chronic that, that causes problems. You don't know what day it's going to hit. New normal. Sometimes he'll eat foods great. Other times you won't want to touch them. The new normal. You just kind of adapt to those things. Some of you here have to go to dialysis. Is that convenient? No. But after a period of time, that becomes the new normal. And I could go on about other things that you all are going through. But by God's grace, we adapt to this new normal. But the devil has another way. Another curveball, if you will, to throw. And he says, ah, if they can adapt and not be torn up every day that they have to do this or they have to do that, they can also adapt to degradation and sin and issues and problems. And a society that is so corrupt, so upside down, so backwards. I don't even need to give you examples of that, do I? 
I mean, if you're looking for examples of how mainstream and normalized sin is, just turn on your television. Just surf the internet. Just look on social media. It's everywhere. And the more we see it, the more we're exposed to it, the more we say to ourselves, well, it's the new normal. And it's not just out there. It's in here. It's in churches where this new, sinful, degraded, I'm no different than everybody else. This is just what we do, the new normal. As sin became general, it appeared less and less sinful. And so when God suggested this thing to Abraham, what did he do? He laughed. In fact, let's go back to this passage. Abraham fell on his face, verse 17 of chapter 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And God responds, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant. And I've lost my place in here, but there's a place in here that it says, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 1814. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's after Sarah laughs, by the way. She also LOLs. And God says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The problem with sin being normalized, the problem with this whole mindset is as we make it all normal, we start to think, you know, this is just par for the course. And somebody comes along and says, no, God wants you to overcome your sin. And what do we do? We LOL. We laugh out loud. This is crazy. I can't overcome all of these things. Are you kidding me? And we limit the power of God and the power of the gospel to change our life. We become accustomed to just living our life. And one aspect of that is maybe God's spirituality going to church. But don't get me to change anything. This idea of God changing my life and purging sin of my life, we laugh out loud. We looked at this text last week, 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. There is a connection between this scoffers and this doubting and the fact that God doesn't have power to work in my life. But if we continue on, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and what? Blameless. Blameless, LOL. You can't be serious. Blameless? That's not even possible. You're kidding me. No, 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 no. Jesus is going to take care of everything. I just have to, you know, it's kind of this once saved, always saved mentality. I just, I make this commitment to him and he does the rest and I just kick back and I do whatever I want to. But you know, that's one of the biggest complaints of the world is that you call yourself Christian, but you act and live and do just like everybody else in the world. Does that truly make sense? 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, capital H, just as he is pure. There it is again. The problem is in this wicked world that reeks of sin, sin is normalized, and in many cases, sin is celebrated. Have you seen that? And even within the Adventist church, on any given night, someone is sleeping with someone that is not their spouse. Someone is abusing alcohol or some other substance. Someone is verbally abusing their spouse or their children. We live in a world that reeks of sin, and it's difficult for a Christian to believe that by the power of God that they can overcome sin in their life. And so when someone says it's possible to overcome sin, they LOL. But we serve a God for which nothing is impossible. Is anything too hard for God? 
And here are the verses. I just got ahead of myself. But we talked about that already, so I'll move on. Friends, God is not limited by physical expectations or social norms. And the real question to ask is, what are we making excuses for? Can God give you the victory over your addiction? Of social media, of gambling, of lust? Yes or no? Jude 24 and 25. Now unto him that is what? Able. Do you believe that? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you how? Faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and how long? Forevermore. It's unto him who is able to keep you. When we don't believe this verse, we are effectively calling God a liar. Isn't it true? We like to insert and cross out unto him who is unable to keep me from falling. And then we like to scribble in the margin, but his grace will cover me anyway. No, to him who is able. Why does a God of love want us to continue to fall and hurt ourselves anyway? He says, no, I have a better way for you. But when we don't believe this verse, we're effectively calling God a liar. 1 John 5, 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a what? A liar. When you or I in word or in attitude do not believe God has the power to give you victory over sin, you are effectively calling God a liar. But my friends, Satan is the liar, not God. John 8, 44, the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, if you want to do, we're not going to take the time, but there's so many verses, but it talks about the Father is truth in Deuteronomy 32, 4. It talks about how Jesus is truth in John 14, 6, how the Holy Spirit is truth in 1 John 5, verse 6, and there's many others. But when we are not acting in ignorance, but hear and understand the truth, but do not believe it, we're calling God a liar. We are assigning the attributes of Satan to a holy God. And you're laughing at God because you are effectively laughing at his word. And how's the last generation described? Revelation 14, verse 5. And in their mouth there was found no deceit, for they are what? Without fault before the throne of God. Friends, I propose that there's something you've been doing for years that you need to stop. And it's not because you're vicious, but because you really don't believe that you can. Sin has been normalized in our society, even in our churches, and we think we can't overcome. There's no need trying. We don't believe that we can stop, but we must change our thinking of the nature of sin and the power of God. I believe after God's power, the next greatest power in the universe is sin. So to break it, what do you need? You need God and his power. But as we read in in Genesis chapter 18, is anything impossible for God? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. You know, often we focus on God's promise to prepare a place. And we have that in scripture. I go to prepare a place for you. That's biblical, right? But too often, we, we focus on the place while neglecting the Holy Spirit's work to prepare us for that place. It's not merely to get us in, but to fit us in. Ultimately, the great controversy of God is not about restoring a place, but rather about restoring a people. Christian education says this, sin has marred and well nigh obliterated the image of God in man. 
It was to restore this, that the plan of salvation was devised, and a life of probation was granted to man. To restore this. To restore what? The image of God in man. That's why they came up with this plan of salvation. To bring him back to the perfection in which he was first created is the greatest object of life. The object that underlies every other. That's a big quotation, isn't it? Here's another one, Education 125. The central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other in the whole book clusters. And we might say, what is that? Well, it's Jesus or the cross or getting us to heaven. No, that's not what it says. The greatest theme, central theme, is the redemption plan, the restoration in the human soul of the image of God. The creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the Word of God. The creative energy, it's in the Word of God. This Word imparts power. It begets life. Every command is a promise accepted by the will, received into the soul. It brings with it the life of the infinite one, and it transforms the nature and recreates the soul in the image of God. That's what God's all about. I don't want to just get you in, God says. I want you to fit in. I want you to be formed back into the image I created you, back into my image, not the image of the world, not the image of social media, not the image of all that garbage out there. He says, I want to restore that in you, and I have the power. I can recreate in you. I can transform your tired, sad life. But for too many, they just LOL not possible. You remember this story where Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus 33, and he says, please show me your glory. You remember when Moses asked for that? And a few verses later in in verse 20, God responds, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me. And what? Nobody can see me and live. Therefore, I can't show you my face, Moses. But then he tells us we will see his face. This is in Revelation 22, 4. They shall see his what? Face and his name or his character shall be on their foreheads. How is this possible? In Exodus 33, God says, no man can see his face and live. And in Revelation 22, God says, they shall see his face. How does this work? 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There's the word. Into the same image from glory to glory, just by the Spirit, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we focus on the glory of the Lord, as we behold Jesus, his sinless life, how he died on the cross for us, we are transformed into the same image. Same image as what? The same image, the same likeness, the same character of Jesus or as Jesus. And how? By the Spirit of the Lord. Sons and daughters of God, 125. The Lord Jesus came to strengthen every earnest seeker for truth. He came to reveal the Father. He allowed nothing to divert his mind from the great work of restoring the moral image of God in man. Are you starting to get it? In heavenly places, 142, we are individually now testifying to the world. When are we testifying to the world? Now, of the power of the grace of Christ in the transformation of human character from glory to glory, from character to character. You know, in every place, Nellen White quotes 2 Corinthians 3.18. She interprets glory to glory in the context of character and often inserts these words, character to character. He wants to transform our character into his character. 
by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. In beholding Christ, our pattern, who is pure and holy and undefiled, we are being prepared for the society of the heavenly angels. Not just to get in, but to fit in. You ever go to a party, and the moment you pull up, you just start to feel really uncomfortable. Say, I don't know about this party. I barely know these people. I'm not even sure why I came. And you walk in the door, and it just, something isn't right. This is uncomfortable. Something doesn't smell right. The music they're playing doesn't really suit you. Whatever it is, you just say, this is not my group. I'm out of place. If Christ is to be our head and prince in the heavenly courts, it's, it becomes us to inquire, what is Christ to us now? God wants us to be so acquainted with him and have his character that when we get home, we don't have that experience. Does that make sense? So it becomes us to inquire, what is Christ to us now? Can we say as we contemplate our Redeemer, whom have I in heaven but thee? But there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Have you ever heard that axiom? Could you do that if Jesus were here? Uh, would you listen to that if Jesus was in the car? Mm. Could you watch that with Jesus sitting right next to you? And we kind of just groan at that, don't we? But there's some validity to that, isn't there? I mean, if you're not into him now, what makes you think your affections for him are going to change on the way up? Our character is not given to us at the second coming, but it is being developed right now in the life that you are now living at this moment. Maranatha 68, those who take no pleasure in thinking and talking of God in this life will not enjoy the life that is to come where God is ever present dwelling among his people. I heard a preacher say, God will take everyone to heaven, comma, who wants to be there. Romans 8, 18 and 19 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, where is it? In us? God's going to reveal his glory in and through us to a heavenly universe, a watching world that says, now wait a second, I know that person, he's a sinful person. Yes, but wait until my Holy Spirit takes control. Wait until you see what I do with this person and my glory shall be revealed in them. The glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we are expecting to say Son of God with a capital S, the revealing of Jesus, maybe when he returns in the second coming, but this is sons of God, lowercase s, and it's plural. Is it possible that the creation of the Son of God is waiting for the lowercase sons of God to have his glory revealed in them? You know, in this great controversy, Satan wasn't just killed immediately. It was more like a slinky down a staircase. Have you ever done that? Hard to get that to work, but it's one step at a time. As the world got to see that God would give everything, including his own son, and that Satan would take everything, including Jesus' life. And we are told that at that moment, there were some, they decided not to go with Lucifer, but there were some that were on the fence. I know Lucifer, he was a friend of mine, maybe they said. And I just, I want to hear him out. But when they saw what he did to Jesus... The last links of sympathy for Satan and the heavenly world were broken when they beheld the cross. Henceforth, his work was restricted, and he was cast out. He lost the sympathy of the heavenly beings at the cross. The question is, what will the people of Christ do now? There's a couple phases here. Phase one, the devil was cast out. We read about that in Scripture. Step two, he lost the sympathy of the heavenly beings at the cross. 
There's a step three. We're going to jump over that and come back. And in step number four, in the last days, even the wicked will acknowledge God is fair and just and true. And we see that in multiple places, one of which is in Revelation 5.13. Even at the end, when their character is not like Jesus, they're going to say, you are still fair and just and true. Your ways are right. But now number three. What is number three? Number three is the question, what will the people of God do now? Those who claim the name of Christ live lives of Christ's likeness for the glory of their heavenly Father. By the power of Christ, they allow the Holy Spirit to transform their character to a waiting world and a watching universe. Is God powerful enough to overcome the powers of sin? And where can I observe that taking place on planet Earth? Because the reality is, if that is not possible, then Christ is a liar. And then, honestly, Satan is more powerful than Christ, and maybe he should be worshipped instead. This is a big deal. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Skipping down, Romans 8, verse 23. We also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption and the redemption of our, does it say character? Our body. What is it that we're waiting and hoping for? A new body, not a new character. I think we need a higher picture of the plan of salvation. We think God's just going to come down, He's going to give us a new body, and there's your new character. Go have fun. But that's not the picture that we see in Scripture. The picture that we see is God wants to empower us now to grow our character so we don't just get in, but we fit in. And then when He comes, He says, I'll give you a new body that will match your character. So everything's in the image of God as it once was. There is a difference between a transaction that gets you in and a transformation that fits you in. Do you see the difference? And too much of the world is seeing salvation as simply a transaction. I made that transaction. I paid that price. I was saved. And they'll tell you the day. And it's a transaction and it's done. But God is concerned with that transformation so that we fit in, so that we want to be there. Nobody's going to show up to heaven and say, oh man, where's the movie theaters? Where's the bars? Where are the showgirls? I don't want to be here. Christ Object Lessons 332. A character formed according to the divine likeness is the only treasure that we can take from this world to the next. Could it be any more plain? When Christ shall come, our vile bodies are to be changed and made like his glorious body. But the vile character will not be made holy then. The transformation of character must take place before his coming. This is Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21. It says, for our citizenship is, doesn't say will be, says is presently in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Why is character such a big deal for God? Maybe you're asking that question. And now, little children, abide in him, says the verse, 1 John 2, 28, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You know that question we raised earlier, how can we see the face of a holy God? It said in Exodus 33, if you see my face, then you'll die. And then it says in Revelation, you will see my face. So how can we see the face of a holy God? By allowing the same God to make us holy before he returns. Beloved, 
Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that's the second coming, we shall be like him. We shall be like him? Notice it doesn't say we will be made like him. It doesn't say at that moment we'll be transformed or changed. It doesn't say he'll give it to us then. It says at that moment we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. Friends, how can we see him? It's because our character has been transformed and changed into his likeness. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It says we'll be able to see him as he is. You know, when Jesus comes back, it will not be just with a veiled face or partial glory, you know, when he came the first time, no beauty or comeliness that we might not be attracted to him. No, 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 no. It will not be little bits of glory just kind of shining through something veiled or, or the backside. Or, no, 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 no. When Jesus comes the second time, it's going to be just shwa. That's as close as I can come to reenacting it for you. Friends, he will come in all of his glory and he'll say, here I am. Are you ready to look at me yet? Can you even look at me? For we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And the implication is we will be able to see him and live. Plenty will see Jesus come back and not live. That's a bit of a difference, a bit of a distinction. As Adventists, we wanted to be a group of people that could live through, not just to. Jesus himself said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. And the implication, again, is see God and not die. So why is character development so crucial? Because it gets, through, gets you and I through the second coming. It prepares you to meet a holy God and live in a holy place with a society of holy beings. In Ron Cluzet's book, Adventism's Greatest Need, he says this, Christ is far more interested in our fitness for his return than we should be of the timing of his return. You know, there's more in this great controversy than saving you which is a big deal for you because, let's face it, you're the only you that you've got. The plan of redemption does more than just get fallen people to heaven. The plan of redemption is about restoring a universe and making it secure for eternity. So salvation is more, is more than just saving lost people. It's actually about recreating the entire universe into the image and glory of God. Here's a verse that's pretty incredible. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. The it is sin. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Do you believe that or is he a liar there too? Because if you believe that, man, that's a head scratcher, isn't it? How can I wrap my mind around this idea that God makes free will and that even in heaven we can choose to do anything that we want to do? I mean, if you take away free will, you don't have love. And yet that same God is guaranteeing for us right here in Nahum 1, 9, that affliction will not rise up a second time. How can he do that? How is this possible? I would submit to you it's only possible in the development of the character of Christ in each citizen of heaven. That's how it's possible. Sermons and Talks 294, without perfection of character, no one can enter the pearly gates of the city of God. For if with all our imperfections we were permitted to enter that city, there would soon be in heaven a second rebellion. We must first be tried and chosen, found faithful and true upon the purification of our character rests our only hope of eternal life. Now, please don't misunderstand. It's only the blood of Jesus that saves humanity. 
by his grace, but also by God's grace, he wants to change us and not just get us in, but fit us in. Our character is not the root of salvation, it's the fruit of salvation. Are you with me? I imagine when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he returned to heaven that there may have been a little bit of a conversation. Gabriel may have said something like, you know, that Lucifer guy, he was my friend, but I wanted to hear him out. But now, after all this, I know his true character. He's a murderer and he deserves to die. Lord, the plan of execution of sin can go forward. But then I imagine Jesus may have turned to Gabriel and said something like, I'm glad you see it that way, but that's not all. You see, I I don't want to just eradicate sin. I want to bring some of them back here. You see, my plan is not just execution. My plan is the plan of redemption. I don't want to just end sin. I want to save sinners. And Gabriel, I really want to make them your neighbor. I'm going to take that David Wright, and I'm going to put him in the palace right next door to you, Gabriel. And I imagine Gabriel says something like, what? Slow down. Um, I mean, we we keep a record here, and um, uh, Lord, I appreciate that you want to get him in, but honestly, Lord, he just doesn't fit. And Christ says, yeah, I know, but he will. Let me do some work on him. And he sends out the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to make us more like Jesus. I've met some people, I've had people in my former churches, they wanted the Holy Spirit so bad so that they would have power and they'd have influence. And they said, I can just see it. The Lord has called me to preach to thousands of people and influence all kinds of people and to have big altar calls and they're going to come forward. Maybe some are here, here even saying, you know, I'm tired of the Holy Spirit just helping me find my keys. I want to speak in tongues. I want to raise the dead. I want to be a missionary. I want to do something real for Christ. I want to see God's church galvanized for evangelism to turn this community upside down. But all you're talking about is character? Friends, those are all good things. They're promises of God, in fact. But the primary role of the Holy Spirit is not to make you or me more powerful, but to make you and me more Christ-like. To work in you to make you and me more like Jesus. I feel our greatest need is not to be informed, but to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, to have the mind and character of Jesus Christ. What's that verse? Let this mind be in you. It doesn't even say strive or push or grit your teeth. It just says, let, let me do the work in you. Submit yourself to me each and every day. Spend time in the word. Let this mind be in you. Because there's a difference between a transaction that gets you in and a transformation that fits you in. Education, page 18, higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for you and I, his kids. Godliness, God-likeness is the goal to be reached. But let's say, face it, the natural inclination of sinful fallen man when we see the glory of God is to hide. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. They were afraid, and what did they do? They hid Moses in the burning bush, he was afraid to look upon God. We have this in Revelation chapter 6, 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're afraid of his face. They're hiding. I want to close with this. In John chapter 2, that's Part of what we have there is when Jesus clears the temple. You remember that story? I don't know how you imagine it or envision it. As a kid, I was thinking, you know, Jesus comes in. He sees what's going on, the money changers, the animals, the sheep, the doves. 
the commotion. He gets very upset, and he starts throwing things and all, you know, get these things hence, and it's a very ruckus thing. But if you'll allow me, I want to read to you. It's about a page long, but I want to read to you Ellen White's account in Desire of Ages, 157, and most of it's on 158, because I think there's some ties here to the judgment as well. Just listen. As he, Jesus, beholds the scene, indignation, authority, and power are expressed in his countenance. The attention of the people is attracted to him. The eyes of those engaged in unholy traffic are riveted upon his face. They cannot withdraw their gaze. They feel that this man reads their innermost thoughts and discovers their hidden motives. Some attempt to conceal their faces as if their evil deeds were written upon their countenances to be scanned by those searching eyes. The confusion is hushed. Notice he hasn't lifted a finger. The sound of traffic and bargaining has ceased. The silence becomes painful. A sense of awe overpowers the assembly. It is as if they were arraigned before the tribunal of God to answer for their deeds. Looking upon Christ, they behold divinity flash through the garb of humanity. The majesty of heaven stands as the judge will stand at the last day. Not now encircled with the glory that will then attend him, but with the same power to read the soul. His eyes sweeps over the multitude, taking in every individual. His form seems to rise above them in commanding dignity, and divine light illuminates his countenance. He speaks, and his clear ringing voice, the same that upon Mount Sinai proclaimed the law that priests and rulers are transgressing, is heard echoing through the arches of the temple. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Slowly descending the steps and raising the scourge of cords gathered up on entering the enclosure, he bids the bargaining company depart from the precincts of the temple. With a zeal and severity he has never before manifest, he overthrows the tables of the money changers. The coin falls, ringing sharply upon the marble pavement. None presume to question his authority. None dare to stop, gather up their ill-gotten gain. Jesus does not smite them with the whip of cords, but in his hand that simple scourge seems terrible as a flaming sword. Officers of the temple, speculating priests, brokers, and cattle traders with their sheep and oxen rush from the place with the one thought of escaping from the condemnation, not of his whip or mighty right arm, but from the condemnation of his presence, end quote. I believe there are people here that will live through the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm very hopeful of that, but that's not hopeful enough. The real question is, Are you ready? Am I ready? I don't want to just get into heaven. I want to fit into heaven. I want to walk through those pearly gates and say, this makes sense. This is home. I belong here. And more than that, when the eyes of the Savior scan the multitudes and land on my eyes, I don't want to be ashamed and hide my face in fear. By God's grace, I want to be pure in heart because I want to see God. So I just want to appeal to you very simply to not think of salvation as just a transaction, but to say, Lord, I want to stand on higher ground. I don't want to be a citizen of this earth, but I want to be a citizen in heaven right now, starting this morning. Lord, I want you to transform my character. Nothing is too hard for you. And as I behold you, as I spend time with you in Bible study, in prayer, make me like you. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to turn our eyes to you. 
We want to look full in your face when you come. Lord, we know ourselves too well. We know our weaknesses, our failings, our shortcomings. But we know that you are more powerful than sin. You're more powerful than death. You're more powerful than addictions. And that you long to come in and do a work in us to restore your perfect image in us. And so, Lord, this morning, all we can say is yes. That's what we want. We want your Holy Spirit to come in. We want you to do a work that we cannot do for ourselves. We want you to restore a place where sin is no more and where everyone is joyous to be in that heavenly place. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.